Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. All right, as, uh, as, as Tim said, um, I'm not Mike. Um, hi, everybody. Hi, good to be with you guys. Um, I, it, Tim and I have, you know, good friendship and have, you know, worked together for a number of years, and it's fun to be able to be here. It's actually fun for me to be back in this room. This, um, there are places probably in your own life that have, that hold specific sort of sacred, special meaning for you. I don't know what that might be. This is actually one of those places. And um, in 1991, I think it was, I sat back there in that, probably third row from the back, um, and, I, and I saw Wayne's World in the movie theater that used to be here, right here. And so this is clearly a, you know, a, I have a deep appreciation for the Mission Viejo campus and for all that God has done in my life through movies. Okay, um, it's really good to be here. Why, why don't you do this? Why don't you, um, why don't you, well, let's just, let's pray and then we'll get, to, we'll get to what we're talking about. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you meet us here. Thank you, God, this is a community of people who might actually take seriously the idea that if someone needs a place to go on Super Bowl Sunday, that there would be parties they could attend because this is what you intend for people to do. So Jesus, we ask that as we, as we talk today, as you would meet us here, that you would do something in our lives which would challenge us and maybe in some small way mess with us and our ways of thinking that we might be shaped into the people you intend us to become. So we give you this time, Jesus, uh, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and turn, if you brought your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, um, the, the church is doing a series that spans all the way coming out of Easter, or out of um, Christmas, I'm sorry, and going all the way until Easter, which is a, a look at Jesus only through the lens of the book of Matthew. And the, what research would tell us is that an overwhelming majority of people are pretty intrigued by the person of Jesus, but that they're mostly sort of turned off by Christians, by his followers. Like Jesus seems all right, but his followers are kind of obnoxious. And so if you're new, um, I just want to let you know that um, the attempt of this series is to present the most unblemished, unobstructed view of Jesus that we can. And I would also say, if you're new, that everybody in Christendom has, has granted me the role of spokesperson for everybody in history. And just to say, if you have, if you have been turned off by some of Jesus's followers, my bad. I'll just tell you, it's my fault. We're all, I'm sorry about that. I'll take that right now. But hopefully in this series, you get a chance to get a picture of who Jesus really is. And that really his intent is something kind of unique and maybe powerful and maybe even life-changing as we look at it. So let me ask you, um, just to kind of begin this, we're going to, you know, I realize you don't know me. And um, I feel like I just want to create a situation in which we're confessing things immediately upon knowing each other. And so what I want to do with that is this. Just by show of hands. Okay, just to kind of get into this right away. Um, how many of you are surrounded by or next to or um, have someone in your life who has a compulsive need to correct what you do as wrong? Like, they, that's just, and you're, you don't feel wonderful about that. Just go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, great. Good. Now, how many of you, this is coming to you, you know what's coming next. How many of you have as a compulsive need in your life to be a constant corrector of things that are not exactly as they ought to be. It is your God-given destiny to tell people how they ought to do things. Okay, great. How many of you rode in the same car? If you're person number one, you rode in the same car with person number two. (laughs) Yep, okay. How many of you are sitting next to that person right now? Okay, good. You wonder about our own pathology right there. Okay, now, um, what I would say is this. What I want you to do is this. And this is, again, this is like, this is your moment, people who raise your hand in number one. 
and I know you're uncomfortable with it, what I want you to do is this. On the count of three, what I want you to say, directed at the general population of people who fall into that second category, what I want you to say is, that's lame. <laughs> okay? But I don't want you to say it like a number one kind of person. I want you to say it like a number two kind of person, meaning not like, that's, that's lame. I mean, I want you to say it like, that's lame, because it is, right? Okay, all right? You ready? guys ready? On the count of three. One, two, three. Okay, now, you guys, see, now, you don't want to be grouped into the second category by your, by your answer right there, and I just want you to know, this is your moment, okay? We're going to do it one more time with a lot of conviction. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Much better. Okay, now, regardless of what category you fell in, whether you answer, whether you raise your hand for number one or number two, we're now kind of in the same boat, and I tricked you into this sort of idea, but you either are someone who is constantly and compulsively sort of judging and correcting, or you now have counter-judged them with your own judgment by announcing to everybody that it's lame. So now, we are all in the same boat. Okay, everyone good? Let's look at Matthew 7, chapter 1, or verse 1. Here it says this. Says this, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used to measure you. Okay, so now here's the deal. Couple things. Gotta know this. First, the word judge. The word judge in the Greek is the word krino. I'm gonna have you all say that. It's not a difficult word, it's K R I N O. Okay, on the count of three, we're gonna say the word krino. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Krino. Very good. Perfect. You nailed it. Okay, good job. Now, um, th- that word has a couple different meanings. The first meaning is this. It is to rightly assess with discernment and wisdom about something. Okay, that's the first one. The second of those two big categories of meanings is to occupy the role of judge in a condemnatory fashion. Does that make sense? To, just, to like declare a judgment with condemnation kind of at its core. So why sort of discernment and condemnation? Are you with me? Okay. Now, in this passage, scholars generally are, I mean, almost universally agree that it's that, it's that meaning about condemnation, that second meaning. With me? Okay. Now, then what you have in, this, in the very first verse is you have this. Do not judge or you will be judged too. There is, that by, by itself could be its own proverb for life. We could just have that generally, this is sort of like the biblical sort of credence for the phrase, what goes around comes around. I mean, it's almost that way. If you grew up in the church, maybe you have some hesitation to say that because it feels like something different. But all this is saying is, I mean, it's practical. If you're a lame, mean person around, people are going to be lame and mean to you. That's basically what it says. But there's also something else here. It's what the scholars call the divine passive. In other words, there's a passive voice that's referencing something that everybody would know, which is God. In other words, everybody reading this would go, oh, the the judge, that's God. Like, it's like this. When I, um, if you've ever been in trouble, like ever in your life. I know most of us are followers of Jesus. We've never been in trouble. But for me, um, when, I was a, when I was a kid, I was raised by a single mom. And so I'm at my house, and I, was, I think I was in fifth grade, and I'm playing soccer in my house by myself, which, you know, I always win, which is really kind of a challenge for me. But I'm playing soccer, and I managed to chip a little soccer, a soccer ball right into this beautiful antique desk that had a glass sort of window on top of it, and it shatters. Now, if I call my friends and say, I broke the desk, I'm going to get it. They're not, well, they, or they say, you're going to get it. You're going to be in huge trouble. I don't then ask them, well, who will be mad? Right? That's already implied. It's known. In other words, the judge is implied without having to say it. If they say you're going to be in trouble, I don't go, well, I wonder who would be mad about this. Okay? Same situation here. Do not judge or you will be judged. The audience would automatically assume that the final judge, the judge of all judges, is, of course, God. Right? Always safe answer in church. If you don't know. God, Jesus, and occasionally love. That sometimes works too. Uh, probably love. 
okay, sure. And you kind of work that in. Okay, now. <laughs> then you have this sort of kind of confusing and frightening idea that comes next, which says this. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. In other words, there is this frightening reality that seems to be communicated here. That every one of us is apparently in a lot of control about, about the judgment that will be given to us. We somehow have some kind of power about our own judgment. We actually get to control and direct it. And it's a pretty frightening idea strange. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Next, verse 3 and 4. It says this. Now, I should say this before we go into this. Of all Jesus' sayings, this is generally regarded as like the most hilarious, like comedian Jesus. This is where he just knocks people over. And prepare yourselves for the comedy that's about to ensue. Okay, ready? Here we go. Please try to keep it under control. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? (laughs) I know. (laughs) <laughs> okay, number four, verse four. How can you say to your brother, let me take, take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? I know, contain yourselves. Hilarious. Okay, now here's a way to look at it. One of the things you gotta look at is this. First is the word look or see. That word, as it, as it first comes to us in verse three, why do you look at the speck of sawdust? That word look is actually seeing with your own eyes, the physical aspect of sight, right? The second way that it comes across is this word pay attention. That word means to be, to be mentally perceiving, to be aware of something, to actually take notice of something that is not necessarily seen by sight alone. Make sense? These are the two distinctions. Now, then he says this, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a plank in your own eye? Now, what I want to do is this. I want us to live in this word picture. It's a pretty simple thing. What I want to do is, and maybe if you're like me and you've discovered this, that some of the most profound things are often expressed in the simplest terms. And what I want to do is I want to cut this a couple different layers so we live in this word picture for a little bit to see how it really might actually work out in our own lives. Okay, so here's, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. And the answer to all those questions is going to be yes. All right? So here's a little participation for you. Okay, now here's what I want us to do. Noticing the themes of blindness and sight and eyes and all that kind of stuff. Let me ask you. Is it annoying? (laughs) Good, yes, already. Way to go. Gold star. She's coming to your party. Okay, um... Is it annoying when you get anything in your own eye? Right. I mean, nobody, like I live by a man-made lake in Irvine, and whenever I ride my bike with my kids around the lake or whatever, and it's kind of, especially in the summer, kind of at dusk when all the little gnats and stuff are flying in little packs, or I don't know what they're called, packs or flocks or whatever they are, this sort of herd of gnats are flying around, and I'm riding my bike through there, and one of them either goes into my mouth or my nose, it's, you know, that sort of, ah, get kids, you know, or it goes into my eye, I don't say to my kids, you guys, good news, I got a gnat in my eye, I'm going to take it home, I'm just going to leave it there, I'm going to show your mom, it's going to be so cool, I mean, if anything gets in our eye, immediately, oh, dude, do something in my eye, everybody grabs their eye because it's never comfortable. Traditionally, when this passage is read, oftentimes what gets heard is specks are tiny little things we shouldn't care about, and planks are really huge, and they're a big issue. But everybody is in agreement that anything in your eye is not awesome, right? Okay, next. Next question. Is the process of speck removal, or nat removal as it might be in my case, is that something that has to be done up close? 
Yes. Okay. The, the answer is yes. Remember, everybody, the answer is yes. Meaning you can't take one of those little trash grabbers that they have like at Disneyland, you know, they grab stuff. You cannot remove a speck from someone's eye with one of those things. The removing of a speck from someone's eye has to be done very close. I, cannot, I can't even see what I'm looking at if I'm at a distance. Right? Right. Okay, good. Now, next question. Would you say that the tools used for removing a speck are vastly different than the tools utilized to remove a plank from someone's face. Yes, right? The word, the word plank in the Greek, actually, it's actually describing a kind of wood that is used to bear weight in construction. In other words, it's a two-by-eight. It's a huge thing. It's not like it's like Jesus is sort of exaggerating about toothpicks. or I mean, it's like, it's a huge board coming out of someone's face, Right? Ah, now it's funny. Okay, God, you're with me. All right, now you're with me. Now, would you also say that the process of speck removal from anybody's eyes requires a unique and delicate trust? Yes, right? Because what? Good, good job. Now, what you actually have is the moment when you say, please, person, whoever is next to you, take a look at my own eye. The most delicate part of my, the most delicate muscle in the body, please look at it and try to get something out of it. You're actually exposing something that is incredibly delicate and sensitive to someone else and saying, please help me. See where this is going so far? Okay, good. (laughs) Good. The answer again is yes. Okay, good. Is the likely outcome of rushing to someone's aid with a plank sticking out of your face when you say, oh my gosh, I can see that you have something in your eye running towards them at full speed to try and help them with the plank, you know, coming out of your face, running up to them, is the likely outcome going to be more damage? Yes, some of you are not, well, I don't know, how big is the plank, and how, where is it pointed, is it up or down? Imagine that it's aimed at their face, is it going to be more damage? Yes. Is it physically impossible, although you might look at my own eyelids and think they look incredibly fit, that to sustain the weight of a plank in my own eye, is it possible for, it to just, for me to balance it out straight out in front of me with my own eyelids? I don't know how to answer that. Your eyelids look pretty buff. Okay, here's the answer. The answer is it's physically impossible for for an eyelid to support a beam, a weight-bearing beam used in construction straight out. In other words, the way that the weight would have to be sustained by, by your own face would be that you would have to hold it there. In other words, I was explaining this to, our, um, to one of our high school students who's teaching this exact same message to our junior hires at the Irvine campus. She's like, can you help me with this? And she had all these intricate things going on. And I just said, I said, I said Natalie, it's like this. And I picked up a, like one of those longboard skateboards that was in her office. And I said, it's like this. And I saw myself even holding the wood skateboard in front of my face and realized at that moment, the planks that are in front of people's faces have to actually be held up. Maybe there's something in this very simple illustration that has so many layers that ought to be wrestled with. Maybe what Jesus is doing here has so many implications for the way that people live and the way that the community of people who would follow him actually ought to live. I mean, maybe what he's saying is, gone is the hunger for fault-finding in other people, much to the chagrin of sort of, you know, our tabloid media, TMZ, and whatever else, then maybe what's actually happening here is what Jesus is saying, there is something else to restoration and correcting and moving towards each other that we ought to consider. The early church. There's only one time in the Bible where they use the term Christian. 
the rest of the time, people who follow Jesus, the people who belong to Jesus, the Christians, are referred to as most of the time by this phrase, followers of the way. In other words, there is a particular kind of way of living in which the people who would profess to follow Jesus and live in community being his body, the church, who would follow him, they lived in such a way that it was peculiar to the rest of the world. And one of the ways that Jesus, the followers of the way, those people who would follow Jesus in and after the resurrection, so maybe they treated people themselves a little differently. Maybe they moved towards each other a little differently than everybody else. Like I said before, this is often treated, this passage, like specks are tiny and insignificant things, but all of us agree. A speck in our eye is not helpful or good. We also know that planks in our own, li- our own eyes can cause damage and that they're serious as well. Recap. Dust is bad. In our own eyes, it's bad. There's a unique trust relationship between the sort of one who has a speck in their eye and the one who remove it. This is something that has to be done up close and that both things, removing planks and specks, requires different tools. Verse five says this, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Sometimes what people want to do with this passage is to say that the most important thing we could do as people who would be followers of the way, Christians, would be to have no judgment about right and wrong ever, to have no assessment, to never correctly discern what's wrong, but yet we all know that there are sometimes when, when there are There are specks in our own eyes which hurt when we also see them in other people's eyes. So it isn't what it's saying isn't just simply never have an opinion, never make a correct judgment. That's not what it's saying. What it says is there's an order and a correct way to do this. Look at it again. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, it still matters to remove the speck. But that process begins with me. Not you, it begins with me with me. I would say this as well. It's worth noting. Recognizing that you have a two by eight sticking out of your face is not the same thing as removing it. Recognizing that you have a plank sticking out of your face where I walk in a room and go, duck everybody, is not the same thing as removing a plank. Here's what I mean. We live, and it's easy to get caught up in, and it seems to be the way that we do things, which is to say, um, maybe you've heard of something along these lines. I know I have a temper, but you're out of control. It is as if I'm able to say, because I'm identifying the plank, I now have license to start trying to pluck specks out of people's eyes. Have you ever had that experience? I know that I have an addiction that's a secret thing that's destroying my life, but you are, you, there's something that's got a hold of your life. I know, that I, 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 I know that I'm wrong here, but you, identifying planks is vastly different than removing them. Back to the scripture. I would say also this, planks equal distance. If there is some kind of plank sticking out of anyone's face, it absolutely has to keep other people at a distance. It absolutely says, I cannot be close to you. You have to stay at least this far away from me, otherwise you might get hurt more. And so people keep their distance. And oftentimes the people with the longest, thickest planks coming out of their eyes are people that have the most secret, deepest hurt and pain. 
And what planks allow us to do is to not deal with the deeper stuff in our own lives, the specks that we're not even paying attention to in our own lives that are actually causing us pain because we're so focused on other people. Planks keep people at a distance, and they hide the deeper issue. See, the intent of correction is about restoration, about reconciliation, about wholeness. It is not simply to say, that's so wonderful that they have that issue. I'm glad I'm not them. That's not what this is about. It's not about highlighting other people's shortcomings. Correction, as Jesus is talking about it here, requires a huge amount of humility and self-awareness. I would say the church has done unbelievably great things in the past hundred years or more in, in all of the world. Unbelievably great things. I would also say that the church has traditionally sort of gravitated towards actually holding planks out of society and actually trying to keep people at a distance. People have been wounded by a church more intent on saying, look what you're doing is wrong and probably not so intent on reconciliation and restoration of people who are broken. I think the church is learning to do this now. I don't think, keeping the scripture in mind, I don't think you can make a case that Jesus' intent was that that was what would happen with the church. I think what Jesus would say is that there's some level of restoration because this is what he models for us, and it is what he intends for the early church. Paul in Galatians writes this, says this in Galatians chapter six. says this, brothers, If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore mature. You should restore him gently. But watch yourself. You may also be tempted. Now leave that on the screen. I know that um, when I've heard this, and it's probably really good wisdom, heard this taught to me for a lot of my life, which is if someone is caught in a sin, be careful that you don't get tempted in the same sin. In other words, you got an issue, and then I would like Homer and say, that sounds like a sin, and wow, it's also kind of awesome. Maybe I want to join you in that. Like, that's sort of the way this has been translated to me. Now, that's wise. If there's some kind of sin that's so, you know, you want to be careful you don't get caught up in it, but that would mean that the word gently doesn't make sense there. If you see someone caught in a sin, you who, um, you who are spiritual should restore him. It would be more appropriate to say the word carefully. But it says the word gently. And then it says, but watch yourself or you may also be tempted. I think this is probably also saying that the temptation wouldn't be just simply to sort of get sucked into whatever they're doing, although that might be wise. I think what this is actually saying is this. You deal with them gently so that you don't turn into someone who's bearing planks out of your eyes. Because look at the second verse, verse two. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Carrying each other's burdens, as I've often heard it, is about, we, I, I've heard it in my past, is like, this is the way it is. It's like, you know, it's sort of like what we do as Christians is, if one of your fellow Christians needs to borrow your truck to move a refrigerator, you carry, that, you bear that burden for them. But that's not what this is about. The bearing of burdens is about sin. In other words, when someone in the body, the, the church, the people, is suffering through some kind of sin, all of the people bear the burden of that sin. It isn't just theirs to deal with, it's ours to deal with. Can you put verse one back on the screen again? Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you may also be tempted to start sprouting planks. Bear one another's burdens. The implication here is for restoration and reconciliation. Years ago, I have, I have three kids. My oldest is seven. When he was, um, my oldest, Dylan, was um, little. 
I, um, I, real, I did not know until I had my first child how tired a person could be. <laughs> um, <laughs> parents laughed. Everybody else was like, well, I don't get it. <laughs> That's fun. Okay. Um, but I remember... I remember how tired I was, and I was also at the same time working at this, this church and felt like I was really important and needed to prove how awesome I was, and so I was working a ton of hours and trying to be there all the time, and I realized in some sort of way that actually work became more restful than being at home because my kids screaming, and kids scream a lot, and I'm realizing this is what's happening in my life, and, I, and my wife, and I, I come home, and my wife always says, someone else in our house, there's like our, you know, our friends, or our neighbors, people with other kids, or whatever, she would say, you know, we're going over to so-and-so's house, and we're going to have dinner over there and we would tote our, our son in one of those little bucket things and by the way those things are convenient until your kid weighs more than eight pounds after that everybody's awkward because you got to kind of like lug it you kind of like eh, it's really convenient to have this thing but we would take this bucket and I would say Amanda why are we got to put Dylan in the bucket and take him somewhere all the time I mean why can't we just stay at home just us I mean why do we why are the people all around and you can sit now I want you to listen listen for planks and specks coming out here it seems like, you know, we have to have somebody else in the house all the time. Don't you just want to be with, don't you just want to be with me? Because I'm all about family. I'm a pastor. It's what we do. We care about our family. And she says with tears in her eyes, I didn't think you would come home to be with us unless there was someone else here or we had to go to someone else's house. Amanda, why do you want to have everybody come over to our house? Why do we have to go to someone else's house? Why is that so important? Do you feel the plankishness of that statement? And through the pain of her receiving that, she says back to me, I didn't think you would come home to be with us unless we had another reason besides our family to be here. She says this stuff. It changes the way I do ministry. It changes the way I think about my family. And the, her intent, though mine might have been different to prove myself right, her intent was to restore a family to the way that it ought to be. Come home, she says. Let's go back to the passage. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6 says this. There's this kind of very peculiar statement here. Everything else seems very clear, and then you have this. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Now, most of us probably went, hey, I kind of got the like log and the speck and that really was hilarious. You were right, <laughs> you know, whatever. But now we're at dogs and pigs and this is kind of a strange sort of, it almost seems like this doesn't belong here. And, and let me just kind of, it it's a little more nuanced than the other stuff. The other stuff's kind of clear once you kind of think about it enough. Time. This is a little bit more subtle. Um, First, I should say this. The way that it's really important to understand the sort of Jewish life and culture a little bit. One of the things you can, one of the things you got to know is this. Um, there is what I would say, if you can imagine a target, sort of concentric circles, bigger, 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 smaller, 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 so you get to like what would be the bullseye. This is the way all of Jewish life is arranged, geographically and socially, okay? So at the center from a geography standpoint is actually the place in the temple called the Holy of Holies. So if you've heard this term, then you have sort of expanding out from that holy place and, you know, the sort of the temple itself and the different courts and whatever, et cetera, until you get to the, um, the court of the Gentile. Then you start actually, as we're expanding out even further to keep speeding it up a little bit, you're into the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, et cetera, and so on and so forth to the rest of the world, concentric circles of holiness, physical distance. You also have a social sort of um, concentric circles of holiness as well, that the most holy person would be the high priest who goes into the holy 
holiest place on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and makes a sacrifice or whatever. Um, and then radiating out from that person is the priests and then other, other Jewish males. And then you have Jewish females. And then you have what are called um, uh, proselytes, means these are, these are Gentile people who are on the outside, non-Jews, who have converted and have gone through the rite of circumcision as adults. Really hardcore. Okay, then... You have, beyond that, you have people that are called God-fearers, who are people who are like, want to follow the Jewish God, who believe in Yahweh, who want to follow his life and teaching, but um, they, um, they don't go through that really hardcore act of adult circumcision. And then you have, beyond that, you have people that are Jewish, but have some sort of physical diseases, disabilities, etc. Then you go even beyond that, you start having people who have um, sexual maladies, is also something that's sometimes included in that group. And then beyond that, way out there, all these people called the Goyim, the Gentiles, people who are non-Jews, who are so outside the circles of holiness, they're not even included at all. And the two terms generally used to describe those people, pigs, dogs. Now, the, most sim- the simplest way to read this part of the, of the verse is this, is simply to say, there are people with whom you will interact, that you will have wonderful, true statements to give to them, and they won't even recognize it. And what they'll do is they'll just trample over it. They, can't, they can never be won to it. Uh, um, they can never be won over to your wonderful argument, how awesome it is. Or worse, they'll come and attack you. But the, the thing that's interesting here is I think Jesus, Matthew, by the way, this is my interpretation, by the way. Matthew is speaking to a Jewish audience. They would have known these words as dogs and pigs to have referred to this far outside Goyim, Gentile community. Would have under, they would have understood those people. And he would have used those terms because Jesus doesn't say the word like, well, don't throw your pearl to a sheep or an ox or something like that. He uses the terms dogs and pigs. I think what he's saying is something totally different. I think what he's actually saying here is this in a very subtle way. There are things that people will do. Those who are God's people who are generally, generally around the most holy thing, God himself, Jesus in this case, the believers, and as he's talking to this, um, this Jewish folks, he would say, it is going to be very easy, I think, again, I'm stretching this out. It'd be very easy to say, look at those people way out there, the easiest people to offer to them a way to live because our way is better. It would be so easy to sort of talk to them and say things to them. But here's what happens when we look at culture who is outside of the sort of center of holiness. It's not uncommon to lob things of wonderful ways, pearls as it were, pearls of behavior modification toward them and expect that they would change. These are the people with whom they have the greatest social and geographic distance. And Jesus says, don't throw stuff way out there. Because at best, they'll just ignore it. And at worst, they'll turn and attack you. There's a cultural sort of subtlety here about the relationship with people who are on the outside in which lobbing wonderful behavior modification, sort of pearls of wisdom, doesn't really seem to be that effective. And at worst, it seems to turn them against you. Do you see how much there is in this passage? It's just a little analogy, and yet it's so rich. Let me ask you, is there such a thing as right and good judgment? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Yes. Are there specks in our own eyes? Are there specks in other people's eyes? Yes. Is there such a thing as right? Yes. What I want you to remember is that in verse 1, remember the divine passive. The ultimate decider about anything is God. Anyone acting like a condemner is taking on a role that does not belong to them. Anybody who occupies the role in your life as the condemner is taking on a role that does not belong to them and it, has not ever, it will not ever belong to them either. 
the only one who might have that role is God himself. Nobody else gets that role. Not you. Not you to other people. Not you to yourself. Not other people to you. That role doesn't belong to them. Here's what I want you to do. Why don't you close your eyes for a second? Just for a moment, I want you to think about a few things. What I want to ask you is this. In a moment of pause, who has treated you in your own past in sort of a plankish manner, that they've come at you in such a way that they've, they've done damage to you, that they sort of unthinking, uncritically came into your, into your world in some capacity with the intent to help, blind to their own stuff, and they just smacked you around, and it hurt. Maybe it's a family member, mother, father, brother or sister. Maybe it's a coworker. Someone from your school who said that thing which so undid you. And you could feel the hypocrisy even as they did that to you. Perhaps your own spouse. Boss. Even a boyfriend or a girlfriend, they said words or had actions to you that were so damaging and that were so clearly hypocritical and so painful that they are still, that voice and that action is still repeating itself in your life regularly. Today, let me challenge you to do one of the most difficult things we can do, which is to leave our counter judgment, our reversal of how we actually feel, to leave that to God, the only one who could do that. And the only way in which we let go of a counter-judgment back on, on anybody else is to forgive. To say, in effect, that person who has wronged me is no longer on my own hook. They're on God's hook. Next. have you acted in a manner in which you are unthinking, unwisely moving towards someone with energy and conviction and intensity and you didn't realize that you had knocked them down with a plank coming out of your own eye? Let me remind you that a plank is sustained in an eye only when someone holds it up on their own. Are there issues that are within you that you have decided to find in other people with greater anger and intensity than you have in, for yourself? For you is even the tougher road. To say the three most difficult and most important words in any sort of relationship, I was wrong. Today, maybe, as you are leaving the room, as you need to go to talk to some people and be able to say to them to their face, if it's possible to say, I want to tell you something. I was wrong. Who is that person? For those people who you cannot possibly, because of either time or distance or it's not safe or whatever else it might be, because they're no longer here, would you say to God about those acts, I was wrong?
I have acted in a plankish manner. I was wrong. Go ahead and open your eyes. The only one capable of condemning, I should say this, all of us are capable of condemning, the only one with the right to condemn is God, and it is his right alone. But I would say this. I want you to look at probably the most often neglected Bible verse in the entire scripture, I would say if you're, if you're a basketball fan, this verse is like the Scottie Pippen to the Michael Jordan of all verses. It's John three seventeen. God may have the right, his right alone to condemn, but here's what he says in John three seventeen: For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That word condemn is the word krino, but to save the world through him. In other words, God's project in the world, though it is his right to condemn, his project in the world was about the continual restoration of bringing back home the reconciliation of people back to himself through his son Jesus. God's project in the world was about taking people who are far from him and to restore them to himself. In a very literal, real way, Jesus came up close to us. Remember all of how specks are removed up close with unique tools, with shared vulnerability. This is the way Jesus came into the world to be with us. What we're going to do is this. We're going to take communion in a little bit. Communion is what believers have done since the very beginning of the early church. It's the way that they remembered that this is what God's project was in the world. That what they would say is that Jesus took on the planks of the world onto himself. You might even say that he was literally placed onto planks to deal with, to take upon all of the punishment and condemnation. Jesus, Jesus' mission was about bringing people back to himself. To himself in him and through him and on the cross. Communion celebrates that this is about the condemnation that could have been ours, but that Jesus took on to himself. And this isn't something that everybody needs to do. If you are just checking, please feel no pressure. This is something that believers have done, people who would be in that sort of category of followers of the way. If this is something that you, you want to do because you are already following Jesus, then great, because you remember this about him. If you're in a place where you're going, man, you know what, I, I get it now. This is something I want for my own life. Then maybe this is a moment in which you say simply in your own words, in your own heart, yes, Jesus. Take, take away planks. Deal with them. What I want you to do is as these ushers are passing out the elements, I want you to take a moment to pause and to confess. The Bible says that when you take communion, you ought to self-examine your own life. To take it seriously. So give yourself a moment to hold it. And then what we'll do is we'll, as you're holding a little cup of juice and a little bit of bread, I'll come up once after everybody's been served and we'll take communion together. So just take a moment, reflect, examine, maybe confess some of the logs in your own eyes, these planks in your eyes. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.